Um, first of all, those of you that are familiar with the community and have been around a while, you know that there are a couple things that are kind of central to who New Community is, and one of those is small groups. Um, this gathering here on Sunday mornings, we view it not as a gathering of uh, people who want to come to do church on a Sunday and then go out into the community and wait till we regather, but we really see this as a gathering of small groups. So often uh, we keep pushing and encouraging and uh, stretching all of us to say, hey, do life together. And if you're going to do it together, we think one of the best ways to do that is in group. And um, just even this last Thursday, the group that I'm a part of meets on Thursday nights. And just being able to spend time and dive into each other's life and pray together. And we asked ourselves the question, how are we discipling people on the go? What does it look like to, in the midst of our movement in the city, in our jobs, our occupations, the things that we're doing, how, how are we actually extending the gospel? How are we seeing disciples being made? And, um, and I, we believe here that group life is about that. And so, um, we have training coming up on October 8th and 9th for small group leaders. Anyone that's currently a leader, as well as Kevin and I, right? Anyone that's interested in being a leader and uh, wants to jump into that kind of level of leadership and step up to the plate for that, then see Kevin. And um, it will be October 8th and 9th. More details will come, but we wanted to get that information out early because uh, it's of vital importance to us as a community. The second thing that I want to highlight before I jumped in, uh, this is actually, uh, we, we just crossed the threshold of a year ago, we planted two churches. One year ago, uh, essentially it was last Sunday if you're taking the corresponding Sunday, but that Sunday was like, uh, the date was a little bit um, early, and so actually we have just crossed where uh, Branches and Emmaus have been planted a year ago, and um, Man, it, it's, uh, I sat down, Kevin and I did with um, uh, David and Ryan this last week, and just continuing, I mean, we meet pretty regularly, but it was a chance to just go, hey, we're at a year, how did it go so far? What do we need to do? How do we keep helping? How do we keep moving forward in this? And uh, I just want to encourage you with the news that um, both church plants are doing phenomenal. Uh, God is really working in, uh, in both, in the Perry community on the South Hill and then in the Mead area up north. So uh, they had baptisms on their one-year anniversary. They had uh, ways to kind of dive into the community and into the city. And so I uh, just really encourage that God's continuing to do that. And I make that announcement for two reasons. One, to say, um, man, keep praying for branches and for Emmaus. I would also encourage you to pray for vintage olive branch and the vine. Um, we want to see God continue to move in those plants and to do great things in this city. But the other reason I announce it is this. Um, our hope and plan is to plant again uh, about a year and a half to two years from now. And uh, I mention it now because we've been talking for quite a while. I mentioned it at the annual business meeting. So for all like five of you there, you know this. But um, the annual business meeting, we kind of went over the fact that um, one of our goals was to hire someone, bring them on staff, have them be with us for a full year, kind of learn in this community, and then go out and plant again. And uh, we spent a lot of time praying about it and searching, and we found, uh, he's not here this morning, but Jeff Reinhardt and his wife Christy and their two daughters are going to come and be a part of our community. They start October 1st. 
Uh, the goal is a year and a half from now that they would plant in the Coeur d'Alene area. And uh, so we see that as kind of an area we believe God is calling us into, and uh, Jeff feels that same call, and so uh, we're really excited about that. It's, uh, they'll start October 1st. You'll see them around a bunch. Uh, when, they're, when they begin, we'll introduce them again, but um, just excited to have them on staff, excited to, uh, to move into this next phase again of uh, us continuing to plant. So group is obviously the center and the core of what we do. Uh, but we also just have this heartbeat to continue to extend the kingdom through planting. And so pray with us in that. And then uh, when Jeff and his wife get here, uh, we'll formally introduce them and you can get to know them a little bit better. All right. Let's jump into um, the book of Matthew. Last week, I had an opportunity just to kind of give you a little bit of an overview of the book. We introed where we're going to head, what we're going to do. Um, we are not going through this book linearly. We're not going to go start to finish, but the goal is to uh, approach the book of Matthew with the ideas or uh, the main idea of mission and discipleship. We kept talking last week, mission and discipleship. That's what the book is about. It's about mission and discipleship. But there's also these five major themes that kind of weave their way through the book. And our goal is to kind of approach the book or attack the book from the angle of these five themes. And uh, this morning we'll jump into the first of those themes and begin to look at the book that particular way. And so to start this morning in the book of Matthew, I would like for you to turn to the book of Luke. All right? Yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy. But Luke 18. Luke 18. In Luke 18, verse 10, it says this. Jesus is telling uh, a parable to the people. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's what I want you to do. I'll give you about 30, 45 seconds. Turn to someone next to you. And, uh, and ask them this question, and then each of you kind of respond to it. What are some of the main or major insights that can be gained from this little teaching or this little parable? Okay? And there's not like one right answer. So I feel like you can give several ideas, several concepts. And uh, let's let this parable right at the beginning kind of speak to us a little bit. All right? So turn to someone, speak into their life about it, and then uh, I'm going to get your answers here in a moment. Go.
hearing the uh, tone die just a little bit, the rumblings, and so you tell me, what are, what are some of the major insights that we can pull out from this? What was Christ trying to communicate to the people? What are your thoughts? Yeah. That's great. It doesn't take all the display or the outward signs of believing and loving the Lord, but it takes this inward humility, this humbleness. Good. What else? What are some other insights that can be gained? Yeah. It's not about works. It's about grace. Excellent. Any others? Yeah, don't just look at your position, maybe what you've achieved in life, where your social standing is, and go, hey, in light of all this, I must be good, I must be okay, but rather, evaluate your life, consider, and all of us need to kind of bow the knee and and repent. Good, good. Any other thoughts? This, This passage intrigues me, or this idea intrigues me, because... Uh, All of those things apply. It's this contrast between humility and grace. It's this contrast between pride and humility. There's a a contrast at play between, uh, in many ways, the upside-down idea of the kingdom. That sometimes those that seem like they would be on top are the ones that should get the recognition for actually being approved by God are the ones that walk away unjustified and the ones that beat their breast and go, hey, I am nothing, and I recognize that. They're the ones that walk home, as the text says, justified. They're the ones that are getting the thumbs up, the approval. And it's this idea that that the least shall be first. The last shall be first, the least shall be greatest. That whole idea of uh, the silly side, really, of salvation. That it doesn't make sense to many of us, and yet uh, it's one of the most amazing things. And this idea, or this concept in Luke 18, I believe is the major emphasis of Jesus' first full teaching in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bible now, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking specifically at the Sermon on the Mount. And my goal today is just to introduce the Sermon on the Mount and specifically introduce the Beatitudes. And then from there, we'll jump in this next week into what do those Beatitudes look like or, or how do they flesh themselves out. In life. So if you have your Bible and you are in Matthew, um, just look with me for a moment at chapter 3. It should be right next to where you had turned. Uh, I love my headings because it helps me know where I'm at. John the Baptist prepares the way. And so Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist is with him. John the Baptist is starting to declare listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent now and believe. Repent now and believe. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and as He's coming on the scene, John the Baptist says, hey listen, there's a guy who's going to be coming whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. There's a guy coming that is so much greater, so much better. He is the full representation of everything that you would want and could ever imagine in God, because He is God. And so He kind of outlines this person coming. Jesus comes on the scene. First thing He does in His 
quote-unquote public ministry as he's baptized. Before all the people, he gets this approval from God or from himself where God the Father from above says, this is my Son, I'm pleased in Him. The Holy Spirit shows up on the scene. The full Trinity is present. God right there kind of declares, Jesus is here. The kingdom is at hand. And everything will begin with His public ministry now. Now it's interesting. As soon as that public ministry begins, chapter 4, Jesus immediately goes to be tempted. He goes into the wilderness. Generally, most people, just a little side note, don't start their public ministry with 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus did. He went there. He was tempted. He was tried. He comes out the other end. And at the end of chapter 4, he says this. If you look at verse 17, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Scroll down a little further. Verse 23, he says this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he comes out and he begins to do ministry. He's declaring the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing. It's a holistic ministry. It's not just about the soul, but it's about the body as well. It's not just about the mind, but it's about the heart. The goal is that in all of who you are, I want to transform you into understanding who the king is and that there's a new kingdom. So he comes on the scene and he begins to declare that. Scroll with me to chapter 9 here for a moment. And you can just keep your finger in chapter 5. And then in chapter 9 it says this, right around verse 35, Jesus is shared this sermon, he begins to heal, begins to put into practice what he was speaking. And then verse 35, it says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It sounds familiar, right? Because it's basically word for word the exact same thing said in chapter 4. In between these two statements... In between these two ideas, that this is what God's ministry is about, this is what Jesus has come on the scene to do, in between that is a major teaching that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. That Sermon on the Mount kind of begins to outline a portion of the book that would be identified as the teachings on ethics in the kingdom. This is what it means, or this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom, and this is the ethics or the way that the kingdom is lived out. And so Jesus gives this teaching, puts it into practice. Later in the book, teaching, puts it into practice. I'm going to keep repeating myself because he keeps doing the same thing the whole way through the book. That's how the book kind of forms itself. So, with that said, as kind of a background, turn to uh, chapter 5, and we're going to read here the first few verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this is what is known as the Beatitudes. It is probably one of the most well-known, most talked about portions of Jesus' teaching in the Bible. It is also probably one of the most misunderstood portions of Jesus' teaching in the whole Bible. So you have much debate as to what he's saying. I mean, you have people that say, well, all the things that he's saying right here are all things that happened in the past. You have other people that go, no, they happened in the present in the Bible. Others say, oh, no, they'll only happen in the future. So covenant people argue with dispensationalists. They have all these fights about what is really saying Some go, no, no, it's really all about salvation, that these are kind of the steps that you take to come into a relationship with God. Other people go, no, you're an idiot, that's not what it means at all. It really means that it's about sanctification, that once you're saved, you begin to do these things, put these into practice, and then suddenly you become like Jesus. So there's all this debate, and primarily it centers around three ideas, okay? The first one is this, that that the Beatitudes are requirements to get into the kingdom, they're a, a, a so-so, like a, a to-do list, if you will. That the Beatitudes are looked at in that regard. That if you do these things, you get these results. In fact, you'll see charts like this. Um, if you want to be poor in spirit, then you get the kingdom of heaven. If you mourn, you'll be comforted. If you're meek, you'll inherit the earth. The list goes on and on, right? I do this, I get this. I remember when I was in junior high or in high school and one of the parents came in to teach on this idea of the Beatitudes. And it's like, if you do this, you get this. And I'm like, I'm not even sad, but I've got to figure out how to start mourning. Because if, if I can mourn, then, then I'm going to be comforted. And I like that. I think it's cool to be comforted. So maybe I, like, and I'm really confused. You know, I'd go to school and I'd be like, come on, persecute me. Let's do it. It's going to be Awesome. It's, I need this. Come on. Come on. And, and really, we, we get this idea that it's a to-do list. You do this, you get this. Let me read you this quote. A sermon, this sermon, he's speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. To be saved is to be so gathered. That is why the Beatitudes are the interpretive key to the whole sermon, precisely because they are not recommendations. No one is asked to go out and be poor in spirit or mourn or be meek. Rather, Jesus is indicating that given the reality of the kingdom, we should not be surprised to find among those who follow him, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. Moreover, Jesus does not suggest that everyone who follows him will possess all of the Beatitudes, but we can be sure that some will be poor, some will mourn, and some will be meek. The Beatitudes are not a list of requirements. They're not a to-do list for you to gain somehow this approval or this standing with God or to get some of the things that you hope to get because if you act one way, you get the reciprocal reward. They're also not ladders. Some people see the uh, Beatitudes as a ladder. Okay, What I mean by that is uh, you start out at the bottom of the ladder, 
At the top of the ladder is like perfect communion with God. Like you're in the best place you can be. You relate really well with Him. You've grown in this intimate relationship with God. And so every kind of beatitude is a stepping stone toward that ultimate goal. So it's like a ladder. And if at any point like you're climbing the ladder and you just pull one of the rungs out, you're going to fall through because you have to have the one before you have the next. And so we have to be poor in spirit and then we can move up to mourning. After we mourn, we can become meek. And there's like this progression. And I guess the ultimate pinnacle of progression is that people will revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of things about you. And so we create this ladder approach to the Beatitudes, one before the other, and so on and so forth. And all of that leads, I think, to this kind of third idea of the Beatitudes, and that's about approval ratings. Sometimes we see the Beatitudes as like this divine approval rating system, that if uh, we have these certain things, and this is where the to-do list and ladders comes into play, you do these things and somehow now God is approving of you. I mean, we live in a world of approval ratings, do we not? I mean, you look everywhere. TV shows false scheduling is based on who approved of the shows before the next set comes out. So they drop the ones people don't like. They add more of the ones that people like. That's why we have, like, CSI New York, L.A., Milwaukee. You know, I mean, it's it, like, oh, this is working. Let's just keep repeating it, right? I mean, we, that's what we do because they've got the approval rating. Some shows are complete approval ratings. I mean, if you sing well enough, you get the approval rating, you move on to the next week. If you dance well enough, if you make out with enough guys, you just keep moving on. That's the way it works, right? And so we put it, cast our votes, we call in, we do whatever we need to, and then all of a sudden we've got this approval rating system. We do it to presidents. We do it to Congress. Every week they put out the NFL guide to coaches' approval ratings on the week before. We, uh, we also, it's funny, we do it with our professors. A lot of college students in here, you've probably gone on to ratemyprofessor.com. If not, check it out. There's a million professors on there, and you can hate on one also, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do. We, like, throw all this information out in approval ratings. I was on CNN just this last week, and God even gets in on the mix, this is what uh, showed up on the screen. I love this. If God exists, do you approve or disapprove of its performance? I love that. If God exists, do you approve or disapprove of its performance? In case you were wondering, I cast a I approve vote. And just to see the results, I clicked, and here's the results. 39.56% approve. 57, disapprove, 3.3 people don't even know what we're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. So anyhow, I mean, I figure if we all go home, click on it really quick, hit approve, we can maybe get God back up to 50%. I mean, that would be, that'd be sweet. But we have approval ratings all over the place. Our society is kind of built on this idea, and I think within the church, we have subtly bought into the idea that we are in an approval rating system with God. That if we can do a certain number of things that we somehow begin to see the tangible expression of God's approval in our life. I mean, if I was to ask you, what are some of the typical ways that people would say, 
this person must be approved by God because this is true in their life. What would you say? What are some of what we typically go, oh, they must be in good with God because their life looks like? They go to Bible school, okay? What else? They have a good family. Community service. They're rich. Keep going. Successful. They're in ministry. How else do we define approval or or go, man, that person has to because they have possessions or because they're doing all of the right things? Are there any others come to mind? Kids go to church. Always cheerful. Maybe their life is easy. I mean, if you think about it, we, we create these systems. So we say things like, well, they must be approved of God because their life seems comfortable, easy, and everybody likes them. Right? And the Sermon on the Mount is in direct opposition to all these things I'm about to say. Sermon on the Mount goes, actually, no, you can be persecuted and people can hate you. And your life won't be good. But that's okay. You're still in the kingdom. You're still approved of God. Or it says things like, um, possessions was brought up. And in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at it, it goes, hey, listen, desire of possessions is a complete antithesis to the life in the kingdom, where you put other things first, and then everything else will be added unto you. Or if you consider, um, some people go, hey, if I follow all the rules then that will show that I'm approved of God and that God will approve me because I'm doing that. And Jesus says in the midst of this sermon, hey, listen, unless your righteousness is that of the best of the best of the best, then it's worthless and I don't approve. Or you hear at the end of the sermon, people who go, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we did miracles, we did all this stuff. We must be approved by you. And he goes, "Uh, who are you again? I never knew you. I don't know who you are. And then basically goes, sorry, not approved. And so all these things that we set up as the ideal, the approval rating system, the to-do list, the check the box, the ladders, all of that, the Beatitudes directly oppose and say it's not about that. So if it's not about to-do lists, it's not about ladders, and it's not about approval ratings, then what are the Beatitudes about? What are they, and what are they about? Well, first of all, the Beatitudes are pronouncements. Beatitudes, quite simply, are pronouncements. In uh, Beatitudes is a Latin word basically meaning happy or blessed. Really, the better translation is not happy, but blessed or fortunate. So he's saying that blessed are those who've received the kingdom because they have God's favor, they have God's approval, they have God's um, endorsement. God is essentially saying to them, fortunate are you. Things are well off for you. Things are good for you if you understand that you are a part of the kingdom and you already possess the rule and the righteousness of God through Jesus. That's the key, that it has to be through Jesus. So Jesus is coming on the scene to people who've already said, I see you as the king of this new kingdom. I see you as the ruler of something that you are instituting now. 
And so what God is saying in this moment is really, I am announcing to you in the Beatitudes a completely new set of a way of looking at the world. That the kingdom of heaven is invading the earth. And it's happening now, is what God is saying. N.T. Wright makes this statement, The Beatitudes are better heard as Jesus' announcements of the dawning of the kingdom. They are the introduction to the sermon, not the moral teaching which forms its body. The Beatitudes are not virtues, rather they describe the new state that has now arrived in Jesus in which those virtues may be practiced. What he's getting at is that these statements of Jesus here are pronouncements of grace. What they are announcing is that the kingdom is available to those who appear to have little or no hope. To those who appear to have little to offer the world. Those who would be seen as marginalized. Those who the world would consider weak, unproductive, unsuccessful. All of the things that are listed in this list. The kingdom is available to you. If you find yourself among the mourners, if you find yourself among the meek, if you find yourself among the neglected, if you find yourself, it doesn't matter who you are, the kingdom is available to you. What he's doing is he's turning the whole paradigm upside down. He's saying that a kingdom life is a completely upside down reality. So the people that are confident, self-assertive, those that get by with all of the skills and abilities that they have, or the powerful, the prestigious, the ones with all of the possessions, what he's saying is that the kingdom is actually upside down. That those things don't prove you have the kingdom, those things don't prove you have Jesus. Rather, blessedness comes not to the ones with status or the ones with power, but it comes to the lowly, the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. And what he's doing is he's creating these shocking statements. People would have gone, whoa, wait, no. No, that's not the way we've understood it. Dale Allison says this, Originally the Beatitudes were intended to startle. Simple observation of the world as it is informs us that the rich, not the poor, are blessed. That those who are happy, not those who mourn, are blessed. That those who have power, not the meek, are blessed. That those who are filled, not the hungry and thirsty. That those who are well treated, not those who are persecuted. You see what he's saying. So the Beatitudes have things backwards. To take them seriously is to call into question our ordinary values. What Jesus is doing is pointing people back to this little parable in Luke. And he's saying, listen, the one who stands up and says, I have all of it together. The one who stands up and says, look at me. I've arrived. I must have God's approval. I'm following the checklists. I'm climbing the ladder. I'm doing all the things necessary to be able to say that the kingdom is present in me. And yet he's saying, no. The kingdom is available to all. It doesn't matter what your status is. It doesn't matter if you're in the corner beating your breast and saying, God, I'm unworthy. He's actually saying, listen, it's for them. You might think it's for them, but it's for them. It's for all. 
It's for any and all. He's saying that the kingdom is upside down. This is something he says over and over and over. He says, the last shall be first, and the first last. He says, the one who's the least is actually the greatest. He says, lose your life and you'll find it. All who humble themselves will be exalted. There's this this upside-down nature to the kingdom. And he's saying that the kingdom is available. Grace is available to all. All are welcome. All can come. In closing, Dallas Willard makes this statement. The gospel of the kingdom is that no one is beyond beatitude. Because the rule of God from the heavens is available to all. Everyone can reach it, and it can reach everyone. And so our kind of place in life is really to understand that the availability of the kingdom is to you. It is to me, regardless of status, regardless of who we are. And so we approach, and we're going to in a moment, communion with this understanding that God's message is our message, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that kingdom is found in Jesus. That He is the life. He is the kingdom. In fact, He is the exact representation of every quality listed in this beginning intro to the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus is the perfect example of all of these things. In fact, He turned the world upside down when instead of coming in riding on a chariot saying, hey, I will rule. He said, I will serve and I will demonstrate my service in one of the least imaginable ways to us because we don't get the kingdom. He says, I will open up my hands. I will sacrifice my life. I will give it on your behalf because the kingdom is me. The kingdom is here. And he's inviting all of us into it. And for some of us, we have taken the step into recognizing that God is the king and that we are a part of his kingdom. And so when we come to the table, it is a time to remember the fact that he has welcomed us. Regardless of our status, regardless of who we are, he's welcomed us. For those of us that, that God has offered you that gift and you have yet to say, you know what, I want to bow the knee and I want to understand He offers it again. And he says that all of us who come and partake, the reason we partake is because of grace. And may this representation of my body and blood remind you to be grateful of that gift and for everyone else, remind them that this body exists, the church, only because of his grace and only because of the fact that he offered this to us. And so we with him pray this idea that God, we want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We want you to demonstrate your rule and reign now. And then this next week, what we're going to do is focus on how is it that he's beginning to demonstrate his rule and reign among us who call ourselves followers. How are we living out these very things? Not because they're a rule, not because we have to check the box, but rather because they absolutely flow out of who we are because he resides within us. Let me pray and then... We're going to take communion. There'll be communion in all three kind of corners. And as you take it, take it with this understanding that just like the tax collector, you come 
humbly. We come before God and we are grateful for His gift. Let's pray.